again speaking today with Rob Henderson. Rob is a PhD student at the University of Cambridge. I understand you're there on a Gates scholarship. Yep, that's right. You studied undergrad at Yale, did some work at Stanford also, so you've been around a little bit. Yeah, yeah, both coasts and now overseas. And you spent time in the Air Force also. That's right. So after high school, I served uh, in the Air Force uh, before going to Yale on the GI Bill. So what are you studying at Cambridge? Yeah, like you said, I'm a PhD student and I work in the body, mind and behavior lab studying moral psychology. I'm interested in the kinds of things that uh, influence our moral judgments, especially different kinds of threats. So right now I'm looking at how social threat influences our moral judgments. Uh, the studies I'm working on right now essentially have participants play these interactive games. And in one condition, the research participant is included throughout the entire game with two other players. And in another condition, at first they are included in the game. And then over time, these two players begin to exclude them and sort of outcast them. And then I present them with these different moral, moral stories, moral dilemmas, and have them deliver judgments about how bad uh, a character in the story was. And right now, uh, tentatively, we're still analyzing the data. It looks like socially excluded people are more severe in their moral judgments than included people. And it looks to be the result of an increase in a sense of threat that they experienced during the game uh, as a result of exclusion. Is it hard to get clearance from the ethics committee for certain studies like this? <laughs> Uh, no, no. I mean, they're, they're, they're very thorough. I mean, we, we have to justify every step of these experiments and you're show not traumatizing people with <laughs> social exclusion. No, no, no. It's, it's never it's never too bad. And, and after the experiments, we always debrief the participants and tell them what the game was about and, and how we could help us learn more about human beings. I saw that a lot of your work has been done in morality. It's kind of that zone of overlap between psychology and philosophy. Yeah, um, a lot of moral psychology draws from, from moral philosophy, Immanuel Kant and, and David Hume and Jeremy Bentham and, you know, these ideas of consequentialism versus deontology. And yeah, a lot of, a lot of moral psychology draws from, from these old philosophers and, and tries to test their ideas empirically. Are our morals innate? Are we born with them? Or are they culturally programmed into us? Well, it's both. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of research in developmental psychology. I worked in a developmental lab at Yale uh, under uh, Paul Bloom, and they do research there on babies and children and the development of morality. And they find that even in babies as young as three months old and six months old, um, they do have preferences, good guys over bad guys. They, they tend to punish bad guys more than good guys. So it seems to be at least some, some of morality is is innate. So we do crowdsource some parts of our morality. Right, yeah. So, so there is a lot of uh, sort of flexibility, and a lot of our morality is shaped by, by our upbringing and by our culture and society and our peer groups. But at the same time, um, every society, every culture that, that we are aware of does have uh, moral rules, uh, moral customs. People feel very strongly that some actions are right and some actions are wrong. So morality itself is, appears to be universal. There are a couple of, of sort of morally charged topics that exist. One would be sex. So sex appears to be moralized across cultures, age of the individuals, the gender of the individuals, um, who's married, whether you can have multiple partners or one at a time. Um, and then another uh, sort of morally charged topic is, is food, rituals around food, um, what you're allowed to eat versus what you're not allowed to eat. Some kinds of food elicit disgust in some cultures and not in others. And so food and sex appear to be universally moralized in some way. 
All right, fascinating. I caught up with you today because of a post um, in your Psychology Today blog called After Service. And the post specifically was the science behind why people follow the crowd. Because I'm preparing a series on what I'm calling mob behavior. Some people would call it herd behavior or group behavior. But I want to understand something. It seems to me that people act differently in crowds, and often worse. They're more emotional, less rational, a little bit more violent and extreme in crowds sometimes than they are out of crowds. So I want to know, first of all, is it true what I think I see? And also, why? Why do people act differently in crowds than they do as individuals? There's a lot of research showing that we are, we're very susceptible to the group, as you say. You know, we like to think of ourselves as these sort of autonomous, self-driven beings who arrive at our thoughts and our actions on our own. But, you know, a lot of research suggests this isn't the case. We, we are capable of independent reasoning. It's just not as common as we might think. We're very influenced by social situations. To take a, a very recent example, actually, I think this study was published just a couple weeks ago. It was at Yale. Researchers asked um, 194 people whether a reasonable person would unlock their phone and hand it over to an experimenter to search through in another room. And about 80% of the respondents said, no, a reasonable person wouldn't unlock their phone and give it to a stranger to search through. But then the researchers asked uh, 103 other people, different people, to unlock their phones and give it to them to search through in another room. And 100 out of 103 people promptly unlocked their phones and handed it right over. So we're very susceptible to social pressures in a way that we don't always understand and can't always predict. So that opens up so many more questions. We are very vulnerable to social pressure. Your first sentence in your in your post says this, it may seem that we are in control of our thoughts and behavior, but social psychology tells a different story. You know, that's a very pregnant sentence. It seems to imply that even when we think we're acting autonomously, that that may be illusory, that we may just be following the influence of a crowd. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of research showing that how other people are behaving around us very much influences how we decide to act. The, the social psychologist who I draw on for a lot of that article, he has this great line. It's something like, you know, whether the question is what to do with an empty popcorn box or how fast to drive or, or how to eat food at a dinner party, what we see other people doing will be important in, in how we decide what to do. You, you go on to say that we're very social creatures. We spend 70 to 80 percent of our time while we're awake communicating in some way. I also found that statistic surprising. Yeah, it's very surprising. Uh, the vast majority of our time is spent communicating with others. And, and not only that, but it's spent mostly communicating about others. So the, the scholar Robin Dunbar uh, at Oxford, he found that about 65% of our conversations consist of what he calls gossip, which is basically discussions about other people. We not only talk to other people, but about other people. That's right. Gossip itself seems to have evolved so that we can track the reputations of other people. And so we tend to gossip mostly about people we're familiar with, that people we know, and, you know, we can only know so many people. Uh, again, you know, there's this idea of uh, the Dunbar number developed by Robin Dunbar, which is that we can usually only keep close relationships, keep close track of about 150 people. And so these are the people we tend to gossip about the most. About the size of my graduating high school class, in other words. So accepting the fact that we act differently in groups, why do we act differently in groups? What are the factors that influence our behavior in groups? You point out a few of these in your, in your blog post. Well, I mean, there are, there are a couple of, of different factors or, or reasons rather, rather why we do this. 
One would be from, from evolutionary psychology. So there's this uh, evolutionary psychologist, Steve Stewart-Williams, and he claims that our conformist streak was adaptive for our ancestors, uh, and that's why we have it today. In our evolutionary past, copying other people was, was usually beneficial. And yeah, basically, if you adopt the practices of other people around you, it's, it's good because the people around you aren't dead. And if you do what they do, then maybe you'll not be dead, too. In the article, you write, a conformist tendency would facilitate acceptance into the group and would probably lead to survival if it involved the decision, for instance, to choose between a nutritious or poisonous food based mm -hmm. on copying the behavior of the, more, of the majority. I think you were quoting him. In our evolutionary past, our ancestors were under constant threat. Keen awareness of others helped our ancestors survive in a dangerous and uncertain world. People usually disparage conformity, but you say it actually helped us survive. Yeah, um, adopting the practices around us has been evolutionarily adaptive. You know, oftentimes when there's a behavior that seems puzzling to us, very often you'll find that it had some kind of payoff for us, at least in the small-scale societies of the evolutionary past. I recently read about this, this tribe from Papua New Guinea, and um, so the researchers found that they have this process for preparing starch from uh, a certain kind of tree, and so the trunk of this, this tree contains this kind of edible starch, um, but in order to make it edible, they have to follow this set of steps, which is, you know, involves extracting it, mixing it with water, passing it through filters and sort of separating the ingredients and drying it in the sun. And then the researchers asked these uh, tribe members, you know, how do you know how to do this? You know, this is very complex, elaborate. How did you learn this? And they couldn't give an answer. They just said, that's what we've always done. That's what, you know, that's just what we were taught. This is how it is. And the researchers sort of looked closer at this and basically found that if they were to skip any of these steps, the starch would be poisonous. So every step is important to rendering the starch edible even though the tribe members themselves don't necessarily know why. Is there such a thing as a cultural heuristic? Cultural heuristic, I suppose one, one way to think about it would be if members of your culture are doing something, um, you should probably do it too, even if you don't necessarily know why, because there could be hidden advantages or payoffs. You know, now, I don't want to glorify conformity in, in all cases, but um, I'm just here trying to make the case that it, it, it evolved for a reason, and, and oftentimes it's, it's very beneficial. You do not want to become the apostle of conformity. <laughs> we'll try to make sure that doesn't happen. So let's talk about some of the other heuristics that we use for deciding how to behave. What is this burden of proof here? Well, oh, first of all, let me just, I've, I've used that word a couple times because it was in your uh, post. How would you define a heuristic? Yeah, you know, I would I would define a heuristic as sort of a, a, a mental shortcut, maybe, for deciding how to act. Um, it's sort of an automatic, implicit behavior that, that we engage in or, or a way of thinking that we engage in that doesn't use up too much of our cognitive resources. And more often than not, um, it works for the situation that we encounter. So we can't reinvent the wheel every time we leave our house and want to travel somewhere in the car. And, and similarly, that works for our mind. We can't go through all foundational moral thought every time we have to make a simple decision. So That's we right. we to use shortcuts to figure out how to act and think. Mm -hmm. So one of those shortcuts you mentioned is the burden of social proof. Can you explain that? In our sort of complex and, and fast-paced world, it's just, it's just easier to determine whether something is, is useful or, or worth our time based on its popularity, based on whether other people are doing it, this kind of social proof idea. 
Um, and as you say, we simply don't have enough time to research every single thing that we encounter and then make an informed decision about it. We often just assume that if enough people do something or buy something or express an opinion, then that's just a good sign that we should do the same thing as well. I love your quote from Whitehead. Civilization advances by extending the number of operations we can perform without thinking about them. Yeah, I love that too. It's the whole idea of like collective learning. Right. You know, we didn't get where we are because each one of us is some genius that has figured it all out. But we've been able to remember more in one generation than we lose in the next. And some of these moral heuristics may be the same thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I would think so. Um, we've sort of, yeah, inherited a set of, of rituals and practices and customs that allow us to, to survive and to you know, maintain a, a society. I wonder now if we could go down this mob behavior path. That's a little less optimistic. And in fact, I think mob behavior is one of the most unsettling aspects of human nature, at least how it manifests in history. Would an individual do things in a mob that they would never do on their own? Would they violate their own morality? It's an interesting question. There is research showing that uh, the, the pressure of social situations can lead people to behave very poorly and do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. You know, there's, there's no downside sometimes to behaving immorally and doing bad things in a, in a mob. There's that sense of anonymity. Um, you can do things without, without punishment, without consequence. So yeah, uh, off the top of my head, you know, there's there's of course the famous Stanford prison experiment where there was this, the power of the social situation led people to behave very poorly. Although there's there's a ton of debate about the validity of that experiment, but I still think it shows that when you put people in a social role, they can behave differently. And then of course we have plenty of cases in in the media of of sort of riots, mob action, mob mentality of people doing terrible things that you know they wouldn't do on a normal day on their own by themselves. So you worked at Stanford for a little while. How do the people at Stanford feel about the Stanford prison experiment? In, in the department there, there's actually a picture or a portrait of Phil Zimbardo, the, the psychologist who uh, designed the Stanford prison experiment. Um, and he's, you know, sort of well-respected, but the Stanford prison experiment itself, it creates a lot of debate and disagreement among psychologists in general. And you can even Google this and read about it, how some people claim that it's actually not a very valid experiment because Zimbardo himself was sort of urging his participants to behave a certain way, which sort of counters his claim initially that um, he just sort of let people do what they want, and that's how they naturally acted. Yeah, just for the listeners who don't know, that's the experiment where they divided some of the cohort into guards and others into prisoners, and the guards began treating the prisoners abusively, essentially. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they were, they were abusing them and shouting insults at them. Uh, in a couple of isolated cases, I think there was even some physical abuse involved. But yeah, it was it was a very uh, unethical experiment that would never be able to to pass the, the ethics review today. Well, I always wondered if the people in that experiment hadn't seen some movie where, you know, prison guards are acting that way toward prisoners. Oh, yeah, yeah. That wouldn't that wouldn't surprise me. They were sort of imitating what they what they saw in the media. Be hard to get a pristine group for that. In a mob, you see a bunch of people doing things and you get swept up in the emotion of the mob and in a situation where an authority figure asks you to do something, you sort of go along with it. So in both cases, there's this strong social pressure. Can being part of a mob cause someone to act against their own morals? Or yeah. does it just free them to act in ways that maybe they would act without some kind of fear of punishment? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I think that people probably behave differently in a mob 
than they would individually. Whether or not that's violating their own morals is an interesting case, but I, I would I would say so. I would say that people are more likely to do things that they will regret later in a mob than by themselves. So that brings up my next question. Are people morally responsible for actions that they commit when they're part of a mob? Fully morally responsible. I mean, it makes the question very complicated because in some ways the idea of moral responsibility is is more of a, a philosophical question than a psychological one. Because from a philosophical point of view, you could even take the idea that, you know, because none of us are, are fully responsible for who we are, we didn't choose our, our sort of genetics and our biology and our parents and our upbringing and what society we happen to be born into, we shouldn't be held accountable for anything we do, good or bad. But I think that kind of that that pathway strikes people as impact are impractical in the real world. But from a psychological point of view, I would say that I think we have differing intuitions about blame and punishment based on social circumstances. You know, so suppose I'm in a crowded sports arena and the other members of the audience begin throwing things at, in, into the field at the players or at the referee, and I see this and I throw something myself. I think people would say, you know, I, I did something wrong here and I should probably be held accountable for this. But if you suppose that I'm in an empty sports arena watching a game by myself, no one in the audience except me, and I throw a bottle at the referee, I think a lot of people would say the second case, I should be held more accountable and, and be punished more severely because in the first case, it seems to be more of an impulsive, emotional, irrational decision swept up in the behavior of the mob. And in the second case, it seems to be much more my own choice. I decided to do this. No one else pressured me. I didn't feel any social uh, pressure to do what I did. So yeah, I think um, from a psychological point of view, you could maybe put an asterisk there and say, yes, it's bad. Yes, this person should be held accountable. But there were these sort of unusual or mitigating circumstances. Are the actions of a mob the summation of the individuals within the mob? Or is there like a mob entity, some emergent phenomenon that takes place that kind of has a will of its own? You know, I, I'm, I'm unaware of any research in particular looking at this, um, but it does seem to be the case that sort of de-individuation and anonymity sort of leads people to maybe act a little bit less rationally and deliberately, and that part of their mind seems to be less active, and they just sort of become a part of this larger entity of other people. And, and also, from the other side of this, people tend to view large groups of people as having less of a mind than an individual person. So if I see a group of 10 people, I might attribute less of a mind to any individual person than when I see a single person by you know, himself or herself. And by extension, less of a moral agency. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Individual. I want to go back to what you were saying about de-individuation. What is that and how does that occur in a mob? Yeah, de-individuation is, is basically this idea that you lose a sense of yourself, of your own agency, in a, in a crowd or in a mob. You sort of become aware that you will be held less accountable for your actions. People aren't really going to track what you're doing. And you sort of lose yourself in, in the mob mentality. When I was doing some research, I came across a study from Sakara and Jenkins from MIT, and they studied some functional imaging of brains during uh, different group decision-making processes. And they found that the medial prefrontal cortex, I guess this is an area the, of self-reference within the brain, that it tends to shut down during certain group behaviors. Their thought was that there is some loss of the individual moral compass in mob behavior that would seem to at least mitigate our moral culpability in some of these cases. Yeah, that's very interesting. And, and it makes it makes perfect sense to me 
that in those situations, those regions of the brain would be would be less active. Some of the, the other research from social neuroscience shows that social exclusion activates the pain regions of the brain. So this, the same regions of the brain activate during ostracism um, as when a person experiences actual physical pain. And so our brains seem to be set up to be very social. We respond to social pain the same way we respond to physical pain. And yeah, when we see an out-group member, we may punish them more severely than an in-group member. Yeah, it's very interesting. It seems to me, too, that it's not that people abandon their ethics, but that a another ethic kind of supersedes it, and that is the ethic of belonging, the ethic of being part of the group. They sacrifice their will in the collective will, and that that somehow is another type of morality. Yeah, you know, there's an interesting idea from Jonathan Haidt, um, and he has this idea called moral foundations theory, which basically states that across cultures, there are sort of these five pillars of morality um, some involving uh, harm or care, others involving fairness, some involving purity or sanctity, and then loyalty and authority. And all of our judgments about morality tend to fall under one of those five categories. And so if you notice, one of those foundations was the loyalty foundation. So belonging to a group, upholding the standards of the group, protecting them, and so on, that in and of itself can be a sort of moral virtue or a moral action or foundation. There's there's also interesting work using um, oxytocin, which is a, a neurotransmitter that originally evolved to bond mothers and infants together. It was sort of its original purpose. But you know, more recent research from neuroscience shows that oxytocin, administering it, can actually make people kinder to one another. And so for a while, um, the sort of popular media and the press referred to it as uh, the love molecule or the love hormone. Give everyone oxytocin, it'll make them nice. But then research found that this is actually not the whole story. The other side of the story is that oxytocin can also make people more hostile to people that they don't consider to be a member of their, their in-group. So oxytocin basically evolved, neurobiologists now say, originally to bond the infant and the mother together, but also make the mother very alert and aware of potential threats and be willing to, um, to eliminate them in order to protect the infant. And so all of us sort of evolved to this now. We all have oxytocin in our brains that can be released when we want to care for someone in our group, someone we care about, our children, our family, our friends. But when we see someone who we perceive as a threat or as hostile or as a, as a sort of outsider, this oxytocin actually makes us more hostile toward them. You can't just pipe oxytocin into the office building and everybody's going to get along. Yeah, that's my understanding as, as well, is that it sort of magnifies pre-existing feelings. So if you're already predisposed to like someone, it makes you like them more. And if you're predisposed to be uh, wary of someone, it makes you more hostile toward them. And then there's, there's even more uh, research on evolutionary mathematical modeling showing that the kind of ancestors that we have were sort of selectively altruistic and selectively compassionate to their in-group members in this. It couldn't have evolved on its own. It could only evolve alongside a sort of hostility towards out-groups. So essentially, a person could not be indiscriminately compassionate and altruistic towards every single person. And of course, on the other hand, a person cannot be a sort of cold-blooded psychopath who doesn't care about anyone in their life. The most adaptive strategy for, for humans was to be selectively uh, altruistic, to care about your group, to care about your tribe, your community, and to be very competitive and hostile, and in some cases aggressive towards people you perceive as outsiders or threats. 
So you're saying that oxytocin is kind of like the MSG of hormones. Right, right. Ramps up your response. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) There's also the idea, okay, so if you look at the traits that are valued in normal civic social discourse, all these pro-social traits, so it would be like level-headedness, moderation, willingness to listen to others. Those are the exact opposite traits from what it seems that a mob follows and listens to. There it's extremism, outrage, intransigence. Those seem to be the traits that a mob is naturally drawn to following. Yeah, I mean, that's that seems to be what the research suggests as well. The article that you, you cited earlier that I wrote, I talk a bit about uh, group polarization. And group polarization is basically this idea that when a group of people who hold the same beliefs interact with one another, those beliefs tend to strengthen um, and people become more extreme in their views. So the, the study that I discussed there was from uh, the psychologists um, Sergei Moscovici and Marissa Zavaloni. Um, and they basically just asked participants about the, the French president at that time. I think it was Charles de Gaulle. And then next, the participants were asked about other things, you know, their attitude towards Americans and so on. And then they had these research participants interact with one another. And they found that discussion led individuals to become more extreme in their views. So um, if the group tentatively sort of held these, you know, I, I kind of dislike Americans. I'm not a big fan, but they didn't have strong beliefs about it. But they were in a group of other people who were the same. You know, I also kind of don't like them. They start interacting with one another. And then at the end of the discussion, everyone basically says, like, I really don't like Americans. So when we see these sort of uncertain opinions echoed back to us, um, these beliefs magnify and strengthen. And so, yeah, in a way, groups sort of make us a little bit less nuanced in our thinking. You know, it's interesting. I guess none of us are immune from some form of herd behavior because we're naturally drawn to people who agree with us. It's pleasurable to have people agree with you. Yeah, yeah, it's, it is. It, it makes us feel good. When we uh, hang out with people who hold our beliefs, it's sort of, it's, there's a soothing feeling that, okay, I'm not the only one who thinks this way or feels this way. We meet other people who share our preferences and our, and our moral judgments and values. Yeah, it, it, feels, uh, it feels good to be with those people. And it's easy to say that, you know, it's, it's those people out there. It's not me. I'm not, you know, I'm not susceptible to this. I'm, uh, I'm beyond this. But on the other hand, you know, some people claim that, by studying this and sort of showing the darkness of, of human nature, we're encouraging it in some way, you know, like, oh, why do you study this? It, it makes people look kind of bad. But I think it's it's good to get this out in the open because only by learning more about it can we understand it and not act on it. We're, I think we're more likely to act on our impulses if we don't know about them than if we do. So we've always had this tendency to prefer conversation and interaction with people who feel the same way about things that we do. But it seems to me that we've never had the ability to isolate ourselves into these little echo chambers that we have now with social media. And I don't want to be hackneyed or trite on this, but is internet behavior an example of mob mentality sometimes? Yeah, I think it is, or at least it can be. It's it's definitely very easy to um, to sort of pick the people you follow, block people you don't like, and just sort of create your own paradise of like-minded people. So yeah, I think in, in some ways, social media can sort of create an echo chamber for us and, and amplify some of our worst impulses. And it's it's so easy now to to join an online mob and attack someone who we don't like. And we can even see now, say on Twitter, that it can have some social proof that it's something desirable to do. You know, if you see someone insult someone else on Twitter and 
you know, that has a thousand retweets and 10,000 likes, you can think to yourself, well, I guess that's what people are doing now. So I can go ahead and retweet and like and comment and join in on this dog pile. It seems to me that there is, along with all of these other elements to mob behavior, there's an element of excitement that our emotions are raised in the presence of other people with raised emotions. Why does that happen? Yeah, that's an interesting question. What is it that allows us to play off the emotions of others and whip ourselves up? I think emotions, I mean, there's, there's research on emotional contagion. Basically, we are susceptible to picking up what's going on in the people around us. So if you walk into a room and everyone is very quiet and solemn, chances are you'll be very quiet and solemn in that room. And then, yeah, of course, there's also research on like the contagion of laughter, for example. If you walk into a room and everyone's laughing, you're going to laugh too, even if you don't know why. You're only laughing because they're laughing. So yeah, I think it's just, we're, we're so social that we're, we're not even aware of, of how much or how contagious it can be. Is there any way to predict how mob-minded each individual would be? Like which people would be more susceptible to mob behavior than others? Yeah, so there's research on the, the big five personality scale. So um, the acronym is OCEAN. So openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism are sort of the, the five factors of personality. And people who tend to be higher on the agreeableness traits are often more sort of go with the flow. They'll do what other people are doing. They don't want to create waves. And so, yeah, people who are, who are more agreeable, I would guess that they are a little more susceptible to sort of picking up on the social actions of those around them. Okay. Well, thank you very much. It looks like you're building up quite a resume. So I'm really glad I caught you at this stage of your career because I'm probably not going to be able to get you later. <laughs> but congratulations on all your work and your accomplishments. When is your thesis tentatively coming out? So it's my first year, um, so fortunately I have two more years to, to write it. But yeah, when, uh, when it comes out, I'll be happy to, to talk all about it. One of the things that I tend to ask people at the end of each interview, since this is Know Thyself Podcast, who are we? Wow, who are we? I think we are good and we are bad, and we should learn more about both so that we can be more good and less bad. How about that? Sounds good. We are little bundles of potential. That's right.